Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, and I sure do hope you do, turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. And this morning we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 20. We are living in a world that is increasingly becoming more opposed to the gospel, the Jesus of the Bible, and those who follow him. And yet, at the same time, we as followers of Jesus Christ are to have joy that is independent of our situation. We are to have peace that passes understanding, and we are to have hope in the midst of our circumstances. So the question is how? How can we have all of those things in a world that is opposed to the gospel and to the Jesus that we love? Well, I believe that we find the answer in the book of Revelation, and we find that answer in in Revelation chapter 1 beginning in verse 9 because I believe that when we know Jesus, when we experience Jesus in all of his glory, and we understand what is going to come to pass, it gives us that joy, it gives us that peace, and it gives us that hope. Now I want you, if you have your Bibles open, to to follow along as I read, beginning in in verse 9, and we're going to read this entire passage, and then we're going to unpack it. And notice what it says beginning in verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that is ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the spirit and I, was, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and his hair were, were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was, was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was, was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now as we unpack these verses, I want us to begin with the last two. Because in these last two verses, verses 19 and 20, we discover that the book of Revelation 
is explained. And here's what I've discovered. If I know what is going to happen and I can prepare for it and I know the end is worth it, I can handle just about anything. And I believe that is why God gives us this book. He wants us to know what is going to happen so that we can prepare for what is going to happen. And he wants to let us know that whatever may come our way, it will be worth it in the end. Now in verse 19, John gives us an outline of the book. And he begins by saying this. He says, write down what you have seen. In other words, he says, I want you to write down the vision that you have just seen. The vision of the exalted, resurrected Lord that we're going to see in just a minute. Then he says, I want you to write down what is now. In other words, I want you to write down what is taking place at this moment. And this is the message that we receive in in chapter 2 and chapter 3 when John is given a message by Jesus to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And then John is told this by Jesus. Jesus says, I want you to write down what will take place later. Now, beginning in chapter 4, many believe that we see these future events. In chapter 4, verse 1, John says this, Then I looked, and I saw a door standing open in heaven, and the same voice that I heard before me speak, like a trumpet blast, the voice said, Come up here, and I will show you what must happen after this. And then it says, And instantly I was in The Spirit. Many people believe that that is a picture of what is going to happen one day when the church, when believers are snatched out of this world and were taken up into heaven. Now, not every believer believes that. But I want you to know that when we get into chapter 6, it becomes very obvious that John is speaking about future events that have not yet taken place. John speaks about Jesus coming back to earth. He speaks about Satan being defeated. He talks about the old heaven and the old earth being replaced with a new heaven and a new earth. We're told that the dwelling of God will come down and be with man. And regardless of how you interpret these chapters, there is no way that you can say that these things have already taken place. These are things that are going to take place in the future that you and I are looking forward to one day. And as we read these things, we are given a picture of what is going to happen at the very end. And for you and I, who are followers of Jesus Christ, we see very clearly that whatever it may be that we go through, it will be worth it in the end. Now, when you look at verse 20... Jesus gives us an explanation of some of what he saw. And what you need to understand is this. The best way to interpret Revelation is with the interpretation that Revelation gives us. Now what I mean by that is many places in Revelation tells us exactly what the symbol represents. And this is one of those places. First of all, Jesus reveals to us the mystery of the stars. 
And Jesus tells us that the stars that he sees represents the angels of the seven churches. Now that Greek word for angel, angelos, can mean an angel, a heavenly messenger, or an earthly messenger. Now most often in Scripture, almost every time, as a matter of fact, every time but two in the New Testament, that word refers to a heavenly messenger. And so many people believe that that this angel or messenger that Jesus is holding in his hand is the angel that is watching after these seven churches. Now the Bible tells us that angels do that. In Psalm 34 verse 7 we read this, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Now listen very carefully. I'm not saying that Scripture says that God always promises to protect and deliver us in this way. And yet what I am saying is oftentimes in Scripture we see God can and God will deliver us from the storms of life. In 2 Kings chapter 19 verse 35 we read this. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. This Assyrian army was camped around Jerusalem. And when the people woke up and looked, they discovered that the army was dead. How? Because an angel of God stepped in and delivered them. In Daniel chapter 6, verse 22, Daniel says this to the king. He said, my God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. And so God sent an angel to take care of, to protect, and to deliver Daniel. Now those are only two examples in scripture, but understand... The Bible teaches that angels are there oftentimes to protect us and deliver us in the midst of the spiritual battles that we face. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus said this, See that you do not look down on one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. It it seems to say That Jesus is saying that that each and every one of us have angels that are assigned to us as followers of Jesus. To watch over us, to protect us. And in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14, it says this, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Now with all the enemies of the church today, I don't know about you, but it's comforting to me to know That God has angels who are working for us and ministering to us. And we do. But there is another option. You, You see, these stars can represent angels, heavenly messengers. Or these stars can represent the spiritual leaders or pastors of these churches who are called to protect as overseers the churches that God has given them. You will notice that the letters are written to these angels or these messengers. And we have to ask ourselves, why would Jesus write a letter to an angel? Now, he might, but more likely, 
it seems that Jesus would be writing a letter to an earthly messenger who is given the task of delivering the message to the church. You see, pastors aren't called to tell you what you want to hear. Pastors aren't called to talk about what's happening in the world. Pastors are called to share the timeless truth of God's Word. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, this is what God said. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And so the Bible says that the people who who wisely interpret the Word of God and righteously lead others to God are like stars. And so the stars are, are messengers. It may be heavenly messengers to protect the church and the people of God, or it may be the pastors, the spiritual leaders of the church. But then he reveals to us the mystery of the lampstands. And he tells us the lampstands represent the seven churches. Now, it's interesting to me that that the churches are called lampstands because Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And Jesus also said in, in Matthew that you and I are the light of the world. You see, Jesus said that you and I are are called to reflect or reveal the light of Jesus to the world. Now, look at verses 12 and 13. If you've got your Bibles open, it says that Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands or he is in the midst of the churches. Do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, where two or more are gathered in my name, there will I be in the midst of them. I don't know about you, but, but it makes me feel pretty good to know that as we gather together this morning, Jesus is with us. He is here to be worshipped personally by us. But not only is it encouraging and comforting to me, I, I got to tell you that it's a little frightening to me. To think of the fact that that the glorified, exalted, resurrected Lord is right here in our midst. And so the left stands represent these these churches, the churches of all ages, but but these seven churches. Now before we go any further, I, I think we need to ask the question, why did Jesus choose these seven churches? I mean, there were many churches Around the known world in that day, there was the church at Rome, the church at Corinth, the church at Philippi, the church at Jerusalem, the church at Thessalonica. These are churches that we know of, and yet Jesus didn't mention any of these churches. Why did he choose these seven specific churches? Well, here's what I believe. I believe that these churches somehow, someway, are representative of all churches. You see, our churches today face the same struggles, the the same challenges, the same obstacles, the same opportunities as these churches. And so beginning next week, as we look at these seven churches, we need to understand that as we examine them, we're not simply examining a church that was ministering 2,000 years ago. We are examining our church. And we're seeing those things in our church 
that we need to correct. We are seeing those things in our church that can be applauded. And we're seeing those things that that we need to do. And so the first thing we see is the book is explained to us. We don't have to wonder what the book of Revelation is all about. The book of Revelation includes what was seen by John, the, the vision of the exalted Lord. What is going on right now, the seven churches, and what will happen in the future. One day, I believe someday soon. But the second thing we see here is this. And this is something all of us need to understand. Suffering is to be expected. You see, there is a stream in Christianity today that I believe has confused many and has led many believers astray. It goes by many names, but but this is what it teaches. It teaches that if you love Jesus, if you have enough faith, then everything is going to go your way. You're going to be healthy, you're going to be wealthy, and you're going to be blessed by God in this world. And yet, you need to understand that that's not what the New Testament teaches. Take a look at verse 9. John is, is now an old man. Most say that he is in his 90s. He has faithfully preached the gospel for over 60 years. All the other disciples who who followed Jesus with him have already been put to death for their faith. And now here is John, and he's exiled on the island of Patmos. Now Patmos had become a penal colony. was located in the JNC about 40 miles outside off the coast of Ephesus. Uh, Patmos was a small island. It was only about 10 miles long by 6 miles wide, and it was a very barren island. And, And John was exiled to this island. And on this island, his life consisted of being beaten, having insufficient food to eat, sleeping on a rocky bed at night, and working hard during the day. And I want you to notice why he was there. It says he was there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And I love how it says it in the Living Bible. It says, I was there for preaching the word of God and speaking about Jesus. He wasn't on this island because he was a criminal. He wasn't on this island because he had a bad attitude and he took advantage of people. He was on this island for one reason. He proclaimed the word of God and he was sharing his testimony about what Jesus had done for him. And John wasn't alone. And notice what he said. He said, I am your brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom And the patient endurance that is ours in Jesus. You see, it wasn't just John who was suffering. John was suffering with all the other believers of his day. There was a cost to following Jesus. Serving Christ was not easy then, and it never will be easy. John's reward for for being faithful was to be imprisoned on a barren, lonely island. And here's what you need to understand. 
when you and I get serious, really serious, about sharing our faith, it will be costly for us as well. Jesus said this in John 16. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. In Acts 14, it says, we must all go through tribulation to endure or to enter the kingdom of God. In 2 Timothy, it says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everyone. Not many, not most, but but everyone. If we really get serious about our faith, proclaiming our faith, not just living a moral life, lots of people do that. But when we really get serious about proclaiming that Jesus is the one and only answer to the problems of life, and we boldly and passionately and lovingly share the truth of the gospel, the Bible says we will face persecution. It is estimated that that more Christians are killed for their faith today than at any other time in the history of the world. Open Door says that 322 Christians are put to death every month because of their faith. Another 722 are the victims of beating, abductions, rapes, arrests, and forced marriages simply because of their faith. And, And those are the ones that we know of. The Vatican three years ago Estimated that over 100,000 Christians are put to death because of their faith every single year. Now you say that's not the way it is in America today. Well, it may not be. But may I say to you that if you and I really get serious about proclaiming our faith... The world will take offense to that. And you cannot look at the events that are taking place in our culture today and not realize that the way the the culture in America looks at Christianity today, Bible teaching Christianity, is radically changing. So suffering is to be expected. The next truth that we see in this passage helps sustain us in the suffering, and and that is this. Worship is to be experienced. Look at verses 10 and 11. John tells us that on the Lord's day, he was in the Spirit. Now, the Lord's day refers to Sunday, the day of the Lord, the day that the New Testament church met together to worship and celebrate the fact that Jesus had defeated sin and death. And here was John all alone on the island of Patmos. And yet on Sunday he was praising his Savior when he had this vision, this encounter with the resurrected Lord. He may have been alone on that island, but he had church. You see, John didn't allow his circumstances or his location keep him from worshiping. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what you are going through. As a Christ follower, you can worship the resurrected Lord. But notice what it says. Not only was it the Lord's day, the Bible says that John was in 
the Spirit. Now, I think that's important because it lets us know that your situation doesn't have to define you or be descriptive of you. You see, in spite of all that John was experiencing, he was worshiping the Lord in spirit. Now, John's experience of being in the spirit spirit was both unusual in its scope, but it should be usual in its expression. Now, what do I mean by that? John's experience was unusual. He encountered the resurrected Lord in a way that that most of us never will here on planet earth. And yet, John's experience of being in the spirit should be something that every one of us flesh out daily. Jesus said this. Jesus said, those that worship me must worship in spirit and in spirit truth. So if we're going to worship, we have to worship in spirit. Now what does that mean? Well, let me give you two things. I believe first of all, it means that that we are free from sin. We have confessed up the sin in our life. And you say, Rocky, we can't live perfectly here on this earth. No, we can't, but we can live confessed up, can't we? We can come before our Lord confessing our sins and becoming clean before him. And there are some of us here this morning who are living with unconfessed sin in our life. And there are a variety of sins. I mean, if, if, if you are having sex and you're not married, you're not in the spirit. I don't care what you say. If you went out last night and and you got drunk, and you can, you can define what drunk is, I can tell you, you're not in the Spirit, because that's sin. If you went out and, and you were gluttonous at the buffet with all your big, ugly, fat friends eating together, that's what a buffet is, right? If you were gluttonous, then you're not in the Spirit, unless you have confessed Your sins, because our sins separate us from God. And our sins, if they're in our life, keep us from being filled with the Spirit of God. If I have sin in my life, then I can't be filled with the Spirit. So you need to confess your sins. And then you need to surrender all. You say, what is all? Well, all is all. It's everything. I mean, if you want to be in the Spirit, you've got to be willing to do whatever the Lord tells you to do. You've got to be willing to go wherever He leads you to go. You've got to be willing to give whatever He tells you to give. Surrender means surrendering all. And oh, dear friend, if you want to be in the Spirit, you've got to deal with your sin. And you've got to be totally surrendered. And it was in this experience of being in the Spirit that John saw the resurrected, exalted, glorified Lord. And notice what he did. The Bible says he fell at the Lord's feet as if he were dead. Say, why did he do that? Well, I believe when you see what John saw, 
The only thing you can do is fall like you're dead. Say, why do you say that? Well, do you remember what Isaiah did when he encountered the glorified Lord seated on the throne? He fell down and he said, woe is me for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Every time we see God's people encountering the holiness of God, recognizing their own sinfulness before that holiness, the only expression is to fall down utterly helpless before God. Now, I've just got to tell you something. I'm a little concerned about the casualness with which we come before God today. And I'm not talking about a type of worship. And I'm not saying that we can't have fun and we can't laugh in church. We can. But I'm here to tell you that that I'm afraid that that too many of us today are, are all too casual when it comes to God. Listen, he's God. He's Lord of all. He's not your homeboy. He's not your main man. He's not the big guy upstairs. He is the holy, all-powerful God. And he deserves our praise. So we see the worship. And it was in this worship experience that that he saw Jesus. and, And we see in here that Jesus... Is to be exalted. In verse 11, John heard Jesus, and, and then in verse 12, he, he saw Jesus. Now, now, I imagine everyone here at some point or another has tried to picture Jesus. Have you done that? I mean, we all have, and, and most of the time it's because of some picture or some portrait we've seen. It, it may have been a, a Renaissance picture that we saw of Jesus. I mean, the church I grew up in. You know, in some of the Sunday school classes, they would have a picture of Jesus. And it was amazing. He, he looked like this, this Anglo-American with long hair. And then we, we have these more modern pictures of Jesus where we have this happy Jesus. And I imagine every one of us, we try to picture what Jesus looks like. Was he tall? Was he muscular? Was he lean? Was he average build? We really don't know what he looks like but but here's what Isaiah said when he was prophesying by the spirit what Jesus would look like he said he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him nothing in his appearance that we should desire him in other words most likely Jesus was an average looking Jewish man there was nothing amazing about Jesus that would cause us to flock to him. There was nothing in his appearance that would draw us to him. We don't know what Jesus looked like when he walked here on earth. But what we do know is we know what he looked like in his exalted state, his glorified state. Three times in Revelation chapter 1, chapter 5, and chapter 19, we see this picture of the glorified, exalted Lord. Now understand These pictures aren't intended to be literal. They are descriptive pictures. And the reason is, it is impossible for us to fully describe the majesty and splendor of the exalted Lord. And so much of 
of what we see John describing in the book of Revelation is his attempt to describe the indescribable. And that's what he's doing when we look at this picture. But let me give you a couple of things. I'm not going to go into detail for the sake of time, but a couple of things that that you need to understand about the exalted Lord. First of all, we are told that he was clothed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. Now, what is this? This is the, the garment of the priest. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews 7 and Hebrews 8 that Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus is our great high priest who is able to save us once for all time. He is our great high priest who is able to intercede with God on our behalf. He is the great high priest who is given the highest place of honor in heaven. He is the great high priest who was offered as the sacrifice for our sins. He is not only the priest who offers the sacrifice, he is the high priest who is the sacrifice. He is the great high priest who is able to meet our every need. And so as we see Jesus in heaven, we see that he is our great high priest and even today He is interceding on our behalf before the throne of God. Then it says that his head and his hair were were white like wool and as white as snow. And immediately this takes us back to the Old Testament book of Daniel where Daniel said, as I looked, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took a seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. He was His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. Jesus is that ancient of days, the all-knowing, all-powerful God. There is nothing that Jesus doesn't know. Then it says his eyes were like blazing fire. The Greek literally says his eyes shot fire. Now fire when it gets real hot, can, can burn through the, the toughest wood. It can melt the strongest steel. And the eyes of our Lord can see deep within you. You can't hide anything from the eyes of the Lord. Nathaniel discovered this in John 1. He said, come and see a man which told me all that I ever did. In Luke 18, it says, for there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed. Hebrews 4 says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Jesus is able to see not only what you're doing. He's not only able to see everything you've ever done and everything you ever will do. Jesus is able to see deep inside And he is able to see the motivations and the intent behind what you do. I understand nothing is hidden from the eyes of our glorified Lord. And then it says in verse 15, his feet are like bronze glowing in the furnace. And this bronze that was glowing in the furnace had been melted and refined. And it was powerful and it was strong was steady and it was firm. We're told that Jesus is is firm like this. He's steady and 
He can be depended on. In verse 15, it says, His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Have you ever been to a waterfall? I mean, a real waterfall. This is the picture here of of rushing waterfall, of a waterfall that is deafening, that you can't hear anything else. And what this is saying is that when Jesus speaks, you cannot ignore him. You cannot reject him when he speaks on that day. And then it says, out of his mouth comes a sharp, double-edged sword. Jesus comes proclaiming the word of God. And then finally it says, his face was like the sun. The glory of Jesus was, was so great that John could hardly even look at him in all of his glory and in all of his splendor. Kind of like Saul's experience on the road to Damascus. Peter, James, and John got a glimpse of this when, when they were on the Mount of Transfiguration. Transfiguration. Moses on Mount Sinai beheld the glory of God. And, and because of this, his face shined brightly because Jesus was so bright before him. The glory and the splendor of Jesus. And one day, we're going to see it. The Bible says now we see through a glass darkly. In other words, we read scripture, we pray, we worship. But our best picture of what Jesus is like is like looking through a dirty glass. But then Paul says, but then on that day we will see him face to face. As he really is. And the Bible says every eye will behold him. For you and I who love him and look forward to his appearing. We're going to look at him and we're going to fall down and worship. For those who have rejected him, dismissed him, mocked him on that day. When they see him in all of his glory. They will fall down as well in terror, realizing that he is the judge at all of all. And so how are you going to see the exalted Lord? As the one that you look forward to worshiping for all eternity? Or the judge that you will stand before? Oh, you will see him. The only question is how. As your Lord, as your God, or as your judge? I want you to bow your head with me. and With your head bowed and with your eyes closed, I just want to issue this challenge to you. You are going to see Jesus one day in all of his glory. And you're going to realize that he is that great high priest who was sacrificed for our sins. He wants to meet your every need. You're going to stand before him and you're going to realize that every action, every thought, every attitude is exposed before him. And you're going to be thankful that he is your savior, the lamb of God. Or you're going to be ashamed because he's your judge. He's the lion of Judah. How are you going to meet him? As Savior 
and Lord or as judge. If you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus, then I want to encourage you right now to get ready. You're going to meet him. And you need to meet him as Savior. And so if you're here and you've never confessed your sins to him, you've never surrendered your life to him, then I want to encourage you right here, right now, to give your all to him. You can pray this prayer if if that's what you desire to do. Dear God, I come to you today admitting I am a sinner. I've disobeyed you. I've lived life my way. Forgive me. I don't want to live that way anymore. I believe you died on the cross and rose from the grave to provide forgiveness and to set me free from sin. I'm giving my life to you. Take control. From this moment on, Jesus, I want to live for you. Thank you for hearing me. Thank you for saving me. Amen.